0: Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole.
1: And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada.
0: Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers.
1: For less than the cost of renting two new releases from your local blockbuster, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures.
0: Brian, do you remember that time you had to leave the house to rent a movie?
1: I do. It was It was like a rite of passage on a Friday night, and in fact... I know everyone just does a Netflix and the Crave TV thing and Disney plus and the HBO and whatever other streaming services are there, but there is still one physical blockbuster left. There's actually, there's a a documentary about it on Netflix, which I think is really funny, um, called (laughs) the last blockbuster. So to learn about the last blockbuster, that's a physical building, find it on Netflix.
0: The worst was looking forward to a movie that you really wanted to watch and then getting to Blockbuster and it was rented out and you couldn't get it. That's a real bummer.
1: Yeah, but sometimes you lucked out and it came in through the return slot.
0: Yes, yes, sometimes. Sometimes, yes. And then sometimes they weren't rewound and you had to rewind them. Oh my God, the first time I ever watched a DVD, I tried to rewind it because I didn't know. I was used to VHS. You don't, you know, I didn't know.
1: Yeah, they they had the be kind rewind stickers on them.
0: Yeah. Also, do you remember when Netflix first started? You had to order the movies through the mail, and they would mail them to you. Yeah,
1: I, I do remember that. In fact, I did that, or I did the physical renting at Blockbuster or Rogers Video as well. And then Netflix was a mail order service to turn into a streaming service, and I, I believe Blockbuster at one point Netflix tried to sell to Blockbuster, have Blockbuster purchase them and Blockbuster thought this was just a ridiculous concept that would never gain any traction and Netflix still around, Blockbuster not so much.
0: Yeah, what a time to be alive. Come see me talk live at Shipicon in Dublin on September 2nd. I'll be talking about software related engineering failures, it's going to be really exciting, I want to meet as many of you as possible so please come. There's a link to register for the in-person or virtual conference and check that out in the show notes.
1: Not to be outdone by Nicole, I am also speaking at a conference. I am debating the future of the metaverse at the North 51 conference in Banff, Alberta, which is a geomatics specific conference or has a lot of geomatics content. It's a debate. I do some talking. Someone else does some talking. I do some more talking. They do some more talking. Somebody wins, I think, in the end. A whole bunch of people clap, I hope. You all know how debates work. If it's something you're interested in, hearing me talk about the metaverse, look up North 51 conference and map. tickets are still on sale for another couple weeks, and then you can see me in person.
0: What a great debate play by play. What are you debating?
1: I'm debating about the metaverse and the virtual world and the impact it will have on humankind, to what capacity. We'll talk a little bit about information security and... The issues that arise from security in the metaverse and then how geospatial services and things related to geospatial will play a role in the outcome of the metaverse. I think this is really exciting and maybe we'll see you there.
0: Sounds like a really interesting debate. What side of the argument are you on?
1: I'm on the side of the metaverse is not a great thing. I didn't even have to request to be on that side. It just It just happened. It was like fate.
0: They must have met you before.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know a lot of people have all of their wireless gadgets and you can use your phone to turn the lights on and you have wireless doorbells and you can pre start the oven from work. I have none of those things.
0: I don't either. I've house sat for friends that have everything all interconnected and they're like, oh, you can use your phone to turn the lights on. And I'm like, yeah, but that's also can be done through the light switch, which is like I can get to the light switch faster than I can get to the app on my phone. If you want to see Brian debate live about the metaverse, there's a link in the show notes of this episode.
1: This week in engineering news, morphing metal, slightly different than mighty Morphin power. Rangers. Researchers at Virginia Tech are using rubber, metal and temperature to morph materials and fix them into place without motors or pulleys. So at the start of this project, the goal was to create a material that could change shape, hold that shape, and then return to the original shape. This material had to be soft enough to morph, but strong enough to create machines that could perform a specific function. These already seem like some fairly lofty design goals. So the team studied kirigami, or the Japanese art of making shapes from paper by cutting, not origami, which uses the folding, and they used this to develop a material architecture from a repeating geometric pattern. For the material in this, in this morphing concept, they used a low melting point ally, endoskeleton, and a rubber skin that when stretched, the material would hold its shape and then heat was applied to melt the metal back into the shape of rubber skin. So the temperature required to do this is about 60 degrees Celsius, which is about the temperature of potable hot water. So aside from the shape shifting, the weakening of metal from bending or breaking can be easily fixed during the melting process. One of the hopeful applications of this product is to build a functional drone that can morph from a ground-to-air vehicle. If you want to read more on the morphing metal, check out the links to the sources on the webpage for this episode at failureology.ca. The new season of the 32-team professional hockey league that plays in Canada and the United States has started, which means the Toronto professional hockey team might win the end-of-season mug.
0: When hell finally freezes over and the Toronto Professional Hockey Team wins the big game, there's definitely going to be a parade.
1: Toronto Professional Hockey Team Parade Planning Services is your one-stop sports mug championship parade planning service.
0: Don't be like Vancouver. They rioted because their professional hockey team has never won a championship.
1: Call Toronto Professional Hockey Team Parade Planning Services toll-free at 1-866-865-1967.
0: Now on to this week's engineering failure, the L'Ambiance Plaza Collapse.
1: Which is not located in France like I thought originally.
0: No, this one's in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and the collapse happened on April twenty third, 1987 at 1.30 p.m., which, funny enough, is the day before this episode came out.
1: But quite a few years before.
0: Yeah, imagine that. Good timing on our part. So L'Ambiance Plaza was supposed to be a 16-story residential structure. It had three levels of parking and 13 apartment levels. It was also made of two offset rectangular towers, referred to as East and West. You're going to hear us talk about the two different towers quite a bit. And those were separated by a construction joint at the central elevator lobby.
1: We don't do above-grade parking in Calgary, at least we don't have a ton of above-grade parking. Also here, where where we do have above-ground parking structures, we call them parkades which I learned was definitely a Canadian term. Specifically, I believe it was, it came from Edmonton, uh, which is our capital city here in Alberta, after I had a number of friends come up from the States. And when I told them they could park in the parkade, they looked at me like I had just invented a word. Turns out in America, they're parking garages or parking structures.
0: Which, okay, I'm just gonna say, parkade does seem fairly self-explanatory and it's also much shorter than parking structure. I like the word parkade myself.
1: Me too. But when I said it, they had no idea what I was talking about.
0: Okay, fair. Uh, The National Bureau of Safety did a formal investigation on the L'Ambiance Plaza collapse, and they published their findings, which we're going to get to shortly. But the industry consensus is that they don't really agree with those findings. And the industry believes that the cause of the failure was something else entirely, which I personally find really really interesting this is the first time we've seen this much of a disagreement on the cause of the failure there's sometimes a disagreement on some of the contributing factors or some of the less critical items but the actual cause of the collapse is is the per, is the part that's not in agreement which is quite interesting so this is a first for us and we're gonna get into it shortly the floor slabs were 175 millimeters thick, post-concrete flat plates with post-tension tendons in each direction. So 175 millimeter thick concrete slabs that were poured as a flat plate, and then they had cables running through them. After the concrete was poured, those cables are tightened, and that gives the concrete some extra strength.
1: Do we see the style of construction um, now, or is it kind of a, a, an older method of construction for, for towers?
0: It's pretty rare in Calgary that we see this post-tension floors are the bane of my existence as a mechanical engineer who's trying to core holes for new pipes and toilets and sinks and shower drains because you can't cut any of those cables. And so you have to x-ray the floor, find where the cables are, and then you have to shift everything around to avoid them, which is a really big pain. There's also a lot of issues with the cables corroding and failing and the structure has some integrity issues some of the time. And so there's a lot of hesitation in specifically in Calgary, I find it just because that's where I've experienced there's probably hesitation in other areas, but there's some you know resistance to post tension in Calgary. But it's not it's not something that's never done. It's just it's yeah, it's kind of rare. We usually do rebar, which is. Which is also steel cables that run through the slab, but they run kind of in a mat or a mesh and they're not tensioned at all. So they don't stick out of the slab. They're, they're just become part of the structure. The other thing that's really interesting about this is how they built the building. So I, they used what's called a lift slab method. I have never seen this. Honestly, I've never even heard of this before. So what they do is they would pour the floor slabs on the ground on top of each other with a bond breaker between each slab. So they had kind of a layer that would prevent the slabs from adhering to each other. And they essentially just built them all one on top of each other. They poured all 16 slabs, and then once they were cured and the slabs were post-tensioned, they lifted them two or three at a time into place with a series of hydraulic jacks and lifting rods, and then secured them to the columns.
1: That does not seem like the best way to construct a building.
0: It seems like a horrible idea. Honestly, a horrible idea. But it offered a lot of cost savings. It was also a lot faster to build, and those two advantages saved them... Uh, about 90% of the formwork that they needed to build those those structures. I think it also sets your structure at risk because you're not pouring things together. So they pour columns separate from slabs. So yes, you still have a cold joint, but you know, you build the columns and you have rebar stick out of the columns and then that rebar gets incorporated into the slab rebar and then that gets poured. And then you know, there's rebar that sticks out of the slab that gets incorporated into the columns. So you don't have that even though it's it's not necessarily full integration, you do have a little bit of, of integration between the different concrete pours. You lose that when you use this lift slab method. Also, I mean, you're putting a lot of work with these hydraulic jacks and they were an issue, by seen as an issue by some, which we'll get to.
1: The West Tower collapses during construction when there were three levels of the parquet poured and three to six levels of each tower So three or six levels of the East and the West tower were in place and the building at this point is 25 meters above the foundation when it collapses and unfortunately 28 construction workers were killed in the collapse. Although the West tower collapses initially, the East tower also collapses due to one or more factors and we'll go through those right now. So there were obviously forces that were transferred from the West tower collapse so forces go from the West tower to the East tower. Secondly, there was damage to post-tension cables caused by debris from the west tower. Thirdly, there was lateral instability caused by falling debris from the west tower. So this collapse was investigated by the Center for Building Technology, the National Engineering Laboratory, and National Bureau of Standards. And their investigation included quite a few things. So they interviewed the survivors and eyewitnesses, They reviewed the design plans, specifications, the shop drawings, the construction records, the project correspondence, the testing lab reports. They reviewed lab tests from the collapse structure, data from subsurface investigations after the collapse, computer analysis, which was in a very preliminary stage in 1987. Certainly not to the extent of today's programs, but they were able to do some very early computer modeling of of this collapse.
0: Speaking of computer analysis in 1987, the Hartford Arena roof collapse that we covered in episode seven, that was the first known engineering failure caused by computer-aided design, and that happened in 1978. So that happened nine years before this collapse, uh, which is also interesting. Also in Connecticut, Connecticut, get your computer straightened out. So as we said earlier, there was a bit of a disagreement or discrepancy on what the actual cause of the failure is. So first, we're going to go over this investigation that Brian just mentioned, the National Bureau of Safety. They think that the failure was caused by the lifting mechanism. So that's the hydraulic jacks that were used in the West Tower to lift the the slabs into place. And their consensus is that there was excessive deformation on the jack head on the most heavily loaded jack and then once it deformed the jack head slipped off the lifting angles and the slab package fell which then of course as we know pancakes onto the floor below and the floor below and the floor below until the entire tower is collapsed so essentially the jack was overloaded and it and it formed and so you know when that happened had the other jacks been close by or Strong enough, they could have potentially carried some of the load and redistributed that, but it was just too much and the entire package fell. They argue that they were able to duplicate this in lab experiments, including the loud noise that witnesses heard when the jack deformed. However, like I said, other investigators of the collapse didn't agree with the National Bureau of Safety findings and... Also, as mentioned, this is the first time we've seen this much of a disagreement on the cause of the failure. The lifting manufacturer, so the jack manufacturer, found that the lifting mechanism was not the probable cause of failure. The lift subcontractor also said that they'd used this design in over 100,000 lifts over the last 17 years. Now, obviously the lifting manufacturer and the lifting subcontractor have a biased opinion. This is their product and their installation. And so I mean, I'm not. I'm certainly not saying they're lying. I'm just saying they are biased. But you have to think about the fact that if they've if they have done this successfully over a hundred thousand times, which you can go back and prove, it does kind of throw this argument into question on whether or not a faulty jack or a deformed jack was really the cause. Also important to note, the lifting assembly design didn't have a two and a half safety factor that would allow people to work under the slab during lift operations. They weren't necessarily working within the rules of the lifting assembly design. Had the jacks been stronger, people would be allowed to work underneath, or had they been following it, people wouldn't have been underneath. So had they been following the rules and regulations for the lifting assembly package that they were using, which which didn't have the appropriate safety factor, people wouldn't have been working underneath the slab when it collapsed. And a lot of death could have been prevented. So we are going to get into some of the other findings. Brian's going to tell us about those in a second. But I do want to mention, I do want to say, I've said this many times, I'm not a structural engineer. I also don't have the resources and we don't have the budgets on this show to pull and review drawings and shop drawings and, all of those documents etc we're not we're not doing an investigation ourselves we're we're reading through the investigative reports on these failures and presenting our findings back to to you guys our listeners but i do want to say that the deformed jack doesn't it's not a super strong argument and when you look at all of the other all of the other items that are laid out their argument does seem a lot more plausible and i just i just kind of wanted to throw that out there so Again, I'm not saying that the National Safety Bureau is wrong and I'm not saying that these other guys are right. I don't know. I wasn't there. I haven't investigated this myself. But the the other findings that we're going to talk about right now are a lot more of a plausible explanation, at least to me, as to why this building collapsed. So, Brian, why don't you tell us?
1: So This project used a design concept that transferred major design responsibility to the contractor in performance specifications and permitted construction procedures that weren't backed up. The structural engineer of the project designed the structural frame, including the lift slab method, but didn't include post-tension design and details or column connection designs and details, which were done by the contractor. The so structural drawings also did not include details about large slab openings, like the elevator or the stairs. So Nicole briefly mentioned that for you know, HVAC design and for running other services through this lab. So they didn't even include any you know, large slab openings for very common things that you need in a building, like elevators and stairs to get between, between all these floors.
0: Where I see something like this is in wood frame design, where the structural engineer of record, who's part of the consultant team, will design the overarching concept for the structure. They'll design a lot of the larger members. The main floor usually is a concrete slab, so they'll design that. And then they provide loading information. But the actual truss design, so the the wood trusses that make up the floors for each floor those are designed by a separate contractor and that's they're carried underneath the the framing contractor and they have to provide detailed and stamped drawings for their truss design so what do the trusses look like what is the web design what's the material the spacing of the joists how far apart they are those type of details are done by a separate group but what i will say is those shop drawings for those materials are stamped And the structural engineer of record takes responsibility for the full structure, and therefore they are responsible, at least in my understanding, for getting stamped confirmation from that trust designer. In concrete construction, I would say this is quite a bit more rare. Usually the structural engineer, as far as I'm aware at least, will, will provide a full detailed design. But... I also have never worked on a new construction post-tension project. All post-tension projects that I've done are existing buildings that we're renovating. And so maybe this is common in post-tension structures. I'm really not sure.
1: Finding number two. So the structural design for the post-tension calculations and the shop drawings were completed by a sub of a sub of the general contract. So what that means is the general contractor hired subcontractor A, who hired subcontractor B to do the design. Like Nicole just talked about, this isn't uncommon except the structural engineer of records review of the shop drawings noted, checking is only for general conformance with the design concept of the project and general compliance with the information given in the contract documents. Even though the contract documents require the contractor's design to be performed by a registered professional engineer, it was not. There was no engineering stamp on the shop drawings or post-tension design drawings. So this is a big issue. I've been involved in a number of projects where we've had to go to the field to complete some task and there haven't been issued for construction drawings or they haven't been stamped or there's been a disagreement between drawings we were issued, what revision number they were on and revision numbers that are on site and what people want to be laid out. So having stamped engineering drawings is huge on projects. And it's it's important to the integrity, I feel, of of engineering work and design and and the profession overall. When you stamp an engineering drawing, you are assuming responsibility and and liability for the work contained and the calculations that are contained that go into that drawing. So this isn't, you know, a real quick, you know, stamp on a Christmas card sort of thing. Like this is takes a lot of review and knowledge and experience and expertise before you stamp an engineering drawing.
0: Yeah, so I have mixed feelings on who's responsible for this, and I don't know what was in the Connecticut code at the time, and I don't know the legality of of how this is navigated in the U.S., but I guess the engineer of record, the structural engineer of record, would argue that the contractor was supposed to stamp it and they didn't. And the contractor would probably argue that they didn't know they were supposed to stamp it, and the structural engineer reviewed the shop drawing. And honestly, I think they're both right and they're both wrong. And what I would guess would happen would be that because the structural engineer of record reviewed the shop drawings and they're the ones that they're the only ones that have stamped part of the structural design, that they would kind of be liable for not having rejected these shop drawings for missing a stamp so if if this was me and I was looking at these today I would reject these shop drawings and make them put a stamp on them before I reviewed them so I don't know I have mixed feelings about this because the spec is the spec and you don't get a free pass to not read it just because you missed something you got to read the spec you got to follow the spec it's the contract but I also think the structural engineer should have caught this that's that's a really big miss on their part So uh, shop drawing review sidebar or maybe soapbox, I I reject a lot of shop drawings and I don't reject them for fun. In fact, it's more work for me to reject a shop drawing than it is to send it back with comments. So it's not fun for me. Sometimes reviewing something with comments does not get someone's attention. And so if I don't think they're going to address my comments before they order the equipment, Or I think that the items that they missed, which are noted in my comments, are significant enough that if they didn't order them would impact the design or the operation of the building, then I reject the shop drawing. Unfortunately, that means I reject a lot of shop drawings and I don't like that, but also I need you to fix it. And it's not that hard. The drawings are pretty clear. The schedule says what's required. The spec is not that complicated and I just, just need you to try a little bit harder please i'm literally going through the schedule and checking things off yep that's there yep that's there yeah that's there and sometimes like half of it is missing it's like did anyone look at this like guys please just just like a little bit more effort just please try rant over
1: in addition to contracting out the post-tensioning design contractor a also subcontracted out the mild steel reinforcement, structural steel, and lifting operations to three other contractors.
0: And I believe a lot of those, if not all of those, also required a detailed engineering design. So that's pretty significant that the structural elements are kind of all done by different parties and again not that it can't be done it just creates this extra level of coordination and who's taking responsibility for that coordination who's making sure that all of these different pieces are interconnected together and work as a single system because it doesn't matter that five people design the five different parts of the structure they're all work as an interconnected system it's like when we talked about piper alpha on the last episode you have You know, three separate rigs and everyone's looking at them as three individual things, but they operate together in a system. And until you look at them as a system, you're not going to understand how doing something in one impacts another. And so, you know, there's there's some extra risks and extra complications that come along with splitting all of this work up. So there didn't appear to be an allowance in the post tension design for large slab openings, which we talked about, like the elevators or the stairs. And this is what others believe to be the probable cause of the collapse. In fact, the post-tensioning shop drawings showed the same typical cable size spacing and layout in the areas with large openings as they did in typical bays. So even the cable layout, the post-tension cable layout, doesn't really seem to have accounted for these openings. It kind of looks like they just applied the same concept or process throughout the slab.
1: So it's kind of like copy-paste, copy-paste. Once they they established an offset, they just kept offsetting that, the entire slab.
0: That's what it sounds like. Yeah, and then they just kind of stopped it around the openings, which doesn't work. So the elevation of the post-tension cables within the slab thickness didn't adjust to accommodate these openings either. Not really surprised. So in the mid-span along the elevator opening, the post-tension stresses in the slab, which are supposed to make them stronger and compensate for those openings, actually added to the loads in the slab. So not only did they not help, they made it worse. And there was also a lack of rebar in this area, leaving those post-tension cables unreinforced. At the column locations, remember we talked about how, you know, because you're pouring all of the slabs on the ground before lifting them into the place, you do have to create a little bit more intricate details where the column meets the slab because you're not pouring them, you know, in succession one after the other. You're pouring all of these slabs and then laying them in, you're basically pouring all these slabs and then putting them in place and pouring columns underneath. So there were questions about the local shear and bending strength in the connection and how the loads transferred between slabs and columns. So this is very rudimentary, but in structural design, the slab carries all of the load and then distributes that load back down to the columns. And then the columns carry that load down below. So that interconnection is really, really important to make sure that that load gets properly transferred from the horizontal slab to the vertical column and makes its way all the way down to the foundation. There were also defects in the post-tension cables and the rebar mats, and they didn't provide the ability to support loads by what's called netting or membrane action if there's a localized defect. So if you have a hammock and one of the strings breaks, the rest of the strings will keep you in the hammock. But due to deficiencies here, the localized issues actually increase the risk for brittle or rapid progressive collapse. So if you think of the slab like a hammock, one string broke and the whole hammock fell apart, which is a problem that you can't have... I mean, talk about lack of redundancy. That's, that's pretty bad because the thing is, you can't build a perfect slab. You'll never have a slab with absolutely no imperfections. There will always be something. And that's why there's safety factors and redundancy and all of these other things that are built into these structural designs so that if one thing goes wrong, you're not at risk of catastrophic failure. When you design a slab with such tight tolerances, you leave no safety factor. You leave no room for slack. And it's a, it's a real problem, as we saw here at L'Ambiance Plaza.
1: And I feel like this is not the only collapse that we've covered where something similar has happened with, with cables and cables breaking, um, and also not having enough safety factor built into the design. So there were allowances that were made in the pre-port slabs for the eventual casting of shear walls, but until those shear walls were poured, there was really high compressive and shear stresses in the areas during the slab. So again, this is another issue with the way that they're doing these lifts.
0: So shear walls are like a wall that acts like a column. And so they hold up, they support a large section of the slab. And until those shear walls are built, that slab is unsupported. And like we've talked about on many of these structural failures, they design for the fully finished slab, but they don't always think about how it gets built. And so these slabs were sitting under some pretty high stress without those shear walls in place until, you know, until they were built. But because they lagged behind, it added some extra risk and stress to that slab.
1: Yeah, and if you don't have a built-in safety factor it's too low, there's a lot of weight and there's a lot of stress that exists without those shear walls or before the shear walls are in place. And and like we've seen, this, this led to the collapse here. So the contract requirements limited the advance of the uppermost lifted slabs to not more than three levels above completed shear walls, but they didn't follow this as welding and shear wall installation lagged further behind.
0: So the contractor also deviated from plans and specs in a number of areas. And even though the actual cause of the failure is a point of contention, both parties do seem to agree that these deviations aren't probable causes But they are still causes for concern, so I do want to touch on them. The footings were resting on fill and disintegrated rock rather than, quote, rock of suitable quality or lean concrete. The dirt or rock that a building foundation or footing sits on is very, very important. And in fact... Geotechnical consultants, and rightfully so, are very particular about what that rock is. And I've worked on a number of projects, especially downtown Calgary, close to the river, where you kind of find an underwater stream as you're digging. And essentially, all of that water just continually compromises that rock and that dirt. And you have to keep removing all of that until you get down to native soil. And then you have to refill the hole again before you can start your footings. And it's a whole big mess and really unfortunate but it is what it is, and it's really important that you start off right and you build on the right foundation.
1: Building on filter, never a good idea. There's probably not sufficient compaction with it. It's so much easier just to just to build in you know, a cut section instead of a fill section.
0: Yeah. And then there was also a number of issues with the welds. So some of the welds were not as strong as the structural drawings required. Nowadays, I often see a third-party consultant, sometimes hired, to act as a welding and structural steel inspector may not have been the case in 1987 but definitely something that goes on today there was also some concerns with the column splice details not meeting the american institute of steel construction specs or the american welding society structural welding code for complete penetration groove welds and a lack of joint penetration and large amounts of porosity were observed in some of the field welds which is another issue so I've said this a bunch of times, I'm not a structural engineer, but these quote-unquote field changes do seem fairly significant between the potential jack issue, between the potential not accounting for large openings issue, and all of these field changes, I got to wonder if the risk of structural collapse was inevitable. I kind of get the feeling that if it didn't happen when it happened, it was going to happen at some other time, because these all seem like pretty significant issues, especially when you start to put them all together.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of things that are lining up that are pointing towards potential building collapse. Again, like Nicole said, if it didn't collapse now, it was looking like it might be likely in the future. In summary, while the National Bureau of Safety thought the deformation of the lifting jack caused the failure, the industry and independent analysis consensus is that the failure was caused by inadequate post-tensioning and rebar design at the elevator openings in the West Tower.
0: We've talked about this as well at But I do want to recap, there were some procedural issues that also contributed. And that's something that's been really, really common with the failures we've covered. There's often a technical aspect of the failure. So a a piece that was undersigned or poorly designed, or maybe they didn't account for something. That's usually a factor. But a lot of these failures, I would say almost all of them, have some type of procedural issue. And that's just a really big problem that we need to deal with in this industry. So The the issues that were flagged were there was an excessive reliance on performance specs, which allowed the structural design responsibilities to be split between the engineer of record and multiple contractors, which we've definitely got on our soapbox about already. The building regulations did not assure competent structural design for these complex structures, or for projects where design responsibilities are split between an engineer of record and contractors. So it sounds to me like the building regulations didn't really allow or have a process in effect to account for the fact that structure was designed by multiple parties. Like I said before, nowadays, I think it would all kind of fall on the structural engineer of record to make sure that they collected the proper documentation from any of the other engineers who designed the other components. But it sounds like at the time, the structural engineer did their piece and they said, well, this is my stuff and the other stuff's up to you and, you know, have fun over there. And it's not it's not my responsibility. And and I just don't think that's the right way to handle it. But it looks like there was nothing in place.
1: Our engineering association would certainly frown upon doing things that way now.
0: For sure. There was also inadequate safety factors and other technical provisions in the building codes. And I know this has definitely come a long way. There was some collapses even in Canada that have contributed to this. And I know that this has been addressed, at least in Canada, I assume or hope it's been addressed in the States. But I honestly don't know because I'm not a structural engineer and I don't I don't work in the States. There was also a bit of an issue with the quality assurance inspections. They were done by a testing agency in lieu of being done by the engineer of record, which is a pretty big deal. Nowadays, the engineer of record... Again, in Canada, when you apply for a building permit, you have to initial saying that you're going to do regular field reviews for general design conformance throughout construction. You have to agree to that. And at the end of the day, when you give your occupancy letter, you say, yes, I did that thing I said I was going to do. I went to site. I looked at stuff. That's important. And that's an important part of the process. And it's it's specifically for this reason, the testing agency doesn't know all of the intricacies of the design. They, they may not have known about all of the different things in the spec, about the fact that the parts of the structure were designed by different engineers. Maybe they didn't have the shop drawings. There's a lot of factors that go into that. And it's really important that the engineer of record or their representative do a general conformance review of their design as it's installed.
1: So there you have it. The Long Beach Plaza structural collapse. Similar to the Hyatt Regency walkway collapse that we previously covered, The structural engineer put a lot of engineered design of structural components on the contractor, which is fine in theory, as long as they are stamped and thoroughly reviewed by the structural engineer of record.
0: For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failurology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failurology, You can email us at thefailurologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us right in the Patreon app. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening, and tune into the next episode where we'll talk about the Florida pedestrian bridge collapse that occurred in 2018. The bridge was supposed to be a redundant structure, but mistakes during design meant that the critical members did not have backup. Bye everyone. Talk soon.